This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It is hours like this which made me want to be on the radio. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, not on any of the stations that I'm on, but if you listen to uh, much of what's on talk radio around the country, a lot of it's all the same. A lot of it's all one subject. A lot of it's all people commenting on the same stories. A lot of times it's them repeating the same talking points. A lot of times it's interviewing the same guests. You listen to five different shows. You feel like you've been listening to one show on repeat for 18 hours. So when I was given the opportunity by John Katzenmatidis three years ago to do this show, I dreamt of doing something different, something that was always different, something that was focused on everything. Uh, something that was focused on the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of society, and a show that was fun. Somebody that uh, definitely fits the bill in terms of scratching the itch on all three of those areas is Steve Cates, or as we affectionately call him, Dr. Sky. If you're tuning into the show for the first time, and we're happy to have you, getting new listeners all the time, thankfully. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. He also does a terrific podcast, which you can check out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. He's kind enough to join us every two weeks. I very much look forward to our hours together. We're going to take your questions as well at 800-848-9222. Steve, it is great to talk with you. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Absolutely. You and yours, Frank, and the listeners. And certainly as we continue here with another exciting edition of Cosmic Conversations, I want to be the first among many to wish all the listeners, okay, staff and everyone, the best for a happy holiday, Merry Christmas, a happy Hanukkah, and all the other holidays that make up this season. We really need it, don't you think, in the way the world is. Uh, we need joy and happiness. So here we go with our cosmic conversation. Yeah, that is uh, that is for sure. Hey, uh, speaking of uh, the holiday season, uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, this week begins the unofficial shopping season for many, many different people celebrating Christmas or Hanukkah or other holidays that involve gift yes. giving. If someone has on their list a space enthusiast or someone that's just interested in the stars or other planets or even science fiction. Do you have any recommendations of a good gift for someone? Because I know there are people listening to us right now that uh, that have folks on their list that fit that description, or they may even want to drop a hint if they themselves fit that description. Anything, whether it's a book or an accoutrement or anything at all that you think would be a good gift for the uh, astronomy enthusiast on your list? Absolutely, Frank. And I recommend a pair of binoculars to start. And people may wonder... Why binoculars and not one of these telescopes? Well, 
the first journey is people begin, and not everybody knows a lot about optics, but we start somewhere. That's why I recommend binoculars. And remember, if you look at a pair of binoculars, let's say, and you see numbers, and a lot of times on the end of a binocular, you may be confused and see 10 with an X and let's say a 50. So the 10 is the magnification. The number on the left is how many times it magnifies, and the number on the right, in this case 50, is measured in millimeters, and we know simply 25.4 millimeters to an inch. So you have about a two-inch piece of glass. The bigger the glass, the more light you'll get. But simply, binoculars are great. And I would go out and get one of those little star charts that are little plastic, mm. like a circle that you can wheel, you know, with your thumb and turn. They're called planospheres. Learn that way. But now let's go to the other side of the answer. For some people that are very advanced and may have a pretty good budget or they love somebody so much that money doesn't matter. But here's an example of something that's really hitting the marketplace now are these new digital telescopes. What's that? It's something from about $500, maybe up to $2,500. And this is amazing. I'm looking to acquire one or get involved with some of the people that actually sell these so we can talk about it more intelligently. But basically, Frank, to conclude that part of what you're asking, these devices you can set up, hold your smartphone. It integrates directly into the smartphone. It will track and find an object. But here's the interesting part about it. It does astrophotography better than you and I could ever do. And hey, I have no claim to fame in astrophotography. Here's what it does. It takes pictures and stacks them and does everything you'd ever want like in Photoshop. So you could be, let's say, in Central Park, New York, or in a dark location, let's say, here out in Arizona. And even from a brightly lit city, you're going to get some decent images. I know this sounds bizarre. You'll actually get images of galaxies and clusters because it has light pollution sensors in there. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Oh, it's crazy. It's just amazing what they're doing with technology. So 20 years ago, that piece of equipment might have cost 50 grand or more, making that number up, of course, because nobody knew for sure, but very expensive. But we'll talk hopefully more about this in, in, in weeks and months to come. Yeah. Uh, because I know people are excited, like myself. Same here. If um, it, Maybe we'll talk off air. If you have a recommendation of uh, mm-hmm. a specific that uh, I should put on my Amazon wish list, uh, let me know yes, because uh, that is know. right up my alley. All right. Absolutely. Um, a lot of things happening uh, space-wise, and the, the phones are already starting to fill up. And if uh, people want to jump on board, we still have two phone lines open, 800-848-9222. Let's start with uh, Jupiter. Jupiter's mm-hmm. red spot storm may be shrinking. What is yes. Jupiter's red spot storm, and uh, why should anybody care about whether it's shrinking or expanding? Well, it's a great question. And from the scientific side, observers have looked at Jupiter since Galileo did this, and his date of claim to fame was January 7th of 1610. He takes his little telescope in a very, very politicized kind of environment where you had to believe that the Earth was the center of the universe. Lo and behold, Galileo looks at Jupiter with his tiny telescope and says, around Jupiter, I see these star-like things, which then he evolved to think they were planets. And these are small objects like satellites. But as people got to observe Jupiter more, this planet, Frank, is so amazing. It's about 88,000 miles across. Its day is about a little less than 10 hours because it's just a swirling gas bag of ammonia and methane. But for the longest time, in its atmosphere, there's this this strange red spot or eye of Jupiter. It happens to be something called an anticyclonic storm, meaning it rotates counterclockwise every six days. But if you go back into the history of observations of Jupiter, these are telescopic views. 
the red spot was about 25,000 miles in diameter, meaning it took up a good amount. You could easily see it. Now, for some strange reason, the spot is now shrinking and going down into a small spiral, maybe not to totally disappear. But again, maybe not everybody in the world has to care about the great red spot on Jupiter. But just know this. If it were a cyclone like that on the Earth, its diameter is larger than the Earth, even at its shrunken phase. Wow. So we're learning so much more about the dynamics. What can we learn from this? If there is a practical side to it, and there is, meteorologists will learn so much more about how storms form. And these storms that we have no idea why this particular storm exists, the technical story is ultraviolet rays from the sun change the color of some of the ammonia that's in this and turn it to a red or a pink. And I remember back in New Jersey when I lived there in the 70s, I remember looking at it in the telescope then. Yeah, I'm not old. I remember looking at the red spot. It was like brick red. So now it's almost like a salmon pink. You can see it in a moderate telescope And that's something that's still fascinating. That is fascinating. 800-848-9222. Let's say hello to Joe in Queens. Hi there, Joe. Very quick things. One would be, uh, yeah, what is the center of energy on a pop-up storm like a thunderstorm they have in the summer? Because they say those things really can't be predicted uh, an hour before, really. They come up with a half hour before. And then should Frank get in a driverless Uber if he's in another city? Would that be okay for Frank to do that, or or do you think it's still dicey? Well, Joe, let me go to the first, the second part first. You know, a lot of these Ubers, that's kind of cool. But now out here in Arizona, we have a problem with these driverless cars, and so do a lot of other cities. But again, whatever that relates to the subject that we're talking about right now, let's go back to the first part of what you're saying. These storms that we talk about, these thunderstorm cells, it's interesting. More research has been done now to identify the worst storms you can imagine are the ones that are going to occur during the middle of the night. Let's say we're in Oklahoma and a a tornado is coming. You can't see it. With this new radar type that's been around for quite a while, new technology called Doppler radar, we get to see the shape and size of these storms. Now everybody with their smartphone, right, Joe, you can actually pull it up and you can actually see the dimensions in color you know, red being the most intense and blue and green meaning less intense. But the technology is getting so much better. And hopefully, uh, well, not hopefully, we're moving into an El Nino winter season, which means more rain, more snow, and maybe even more storms. So stay tuned. Thank you, Joe. 800-848-9222. There's been a lot of focus on China. Obviously, there's uh, a lot of geopolitical tensions. Uh, President uh, Biden just met with Xi Jinping to talk about everything from uh, pandas to diplomacy. There's some concern about uh, China and the uh, respiratory illness that they're dealing with out there. Some people concerned that this might have the makings of another COVID. One of the things that uh, China has been incredibly invested in has been their space program. They are expanding at warp speed, pardon the pun, in terms of uh, fast-tracking their face, their space program. What's going on with China's efforts to deal with space debris? And what is the story that I heard about some Chinese space debris slamming into the moon? What happened? 
Well, let's go backwards about to 2008. China did something rather nefarious or very evil in my estimation. And there are other people in the space industries, you know, understanding. What they did was they fired a rocket literally up into space, and it destroyed a meteorological satellite that they had, creating this most incredible debris field. And that's against every charter that you can imagine in the world. In other words, when you're hitting an object made of metal and all other components, what they did was, like a shotgun blast, they just dispersed so much of this material into this orbit, which then theoretically could have damaged. We don't know if it actually did damage many satellites. But what's happening with China is they obviously, as you've mentioned correctly, a very focused and aggressive space program. And, you know, if we look at the total amount of money that they're spending compared to what NASA's budget is, if you really look at NASA's budget, Frank, it's incredibly small compared to so many of the other things that the federal government has, obviously, like Social Security, Medicare, you know, all the things like that, that obviously, you know, we all need, we all want. If we're retired, we want our money back that we paid in. But going back to China very quickly here, they have a very focused space program and a military program. One of the things I find most incredible that they've done, for the longest time, it took the American space program many, many years. We're talking like 20 or more years, even longer, to go from a Mars spacecraft that would actually go around and orbit the planet, because a number of them actually crashed and just bypassed it. They did something a couple of years ago, totally amazing. In one fell swoop, they actually sent a Mars spacecraft. It detached an object in space, which went into Martian orbit. Then, get a load of this, it's even more incredible, it then sent a descent module, soft landing on the surface of Mars, which is an incredible feat because those eight to 10 minutes of hell, as they describe it, coming through the Martian atmosphere and soft landing, it did. And then what did it do then? It sent out a small rover. So you have to give them a lot of credit. But something that's really weird here, and I'll wrap it up quickly on this because we could spend, what, five shows just talking about China and what they're doing. It's amazing. But this is something is that something crashed into the moon that they sent in the year 2014. Well, it was two. There were two large craters that were actually you know, made on the surface of the moon. And people are trying to find out what the heck was this? It's a mystery rocket. Now, it goes back to the, a long story. It goes back to October of 2014 when they believe that is space enthusiasts and scientists that a long March 3C booster rocket was the item that crashed into the moon. And if so, it was carrying something called the Chung'e E 5T1, which is a spacecraft payload that actually was part of some kind of a soft landing on the surface of the moon. Now, what they found out on the surface of the moon, and I'll tell you how they found this because of space reconnaissance, you know, images. There are two of these double craters on the moon. The mystery is, what was the second payload that made this incredibly large crater you know, in, in a spacecraft size. I mean, it could be what, maybe a couple of hundred feet across, maybe 80 feet across, nobody knows. So even to this day, nobody knows what that other object was, a secret project that they may have had. Some thought it was a errant uh, SpaceX booster rocket that actually got loose, which is not true. But here's the interesting part about it. How is this even detected? Kudos to Arizona, where I am, ASU, Arizona State University, they have the emission control, if you want to call it, and one of the most amazing spacecraft that people should look up. It's the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And it's maybe the size of a small little tiny subcompact car. But let's say it's above 20 miles above the lunar surface. It found an image, these areas on the moon where these impacts occurred. This thing doesn't miss anything. And the most incredible thing for anybody, Frank, that denies that we landed on the surface of the moon 
it has incredible images of all of the Apollo landing sites. Wow. When you see the descent module, the actual footprints, you can see them. And you see the uh, you know, lunar rovers from Apollos that were 15, 16, and 17. So the mystery going back to China is nobody knows what that other object was. Speculation, we could go on forever. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. But again, summarizing, the Chinese space program is very aggressive. And it's more than likely, whether we like the politics of it or not, or whatever our opinions are, they may be the ones getting to the surface of the moon way faster and quicker than we return. The goal was 2025, let's say, to land astronauts on the moon with Artemis, but that's probably going to be pushed back. I wouldn't be surprised if we see the Chinese do it and pull like an Apollo 11 like we did back in the late 1960s. Interesting. Uh, in uh, just a couple of minutes, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, what uh, what India is doing or uh, Japan in the uh, in the satellite sphere mm-hmm. and in terms of the space exploration sphere, because uh, both of those countries are doing something interesting. But uh, a lot of people very eager to chat with you. David is in Ohio. Hello, David. Yes, uh, you covered the uh, my primary question about space mm-hmm. debris. My question to your guest would be. Does he think that we may be trapped on this planet due to space debris? How would he advise that we clean up the space debris? Uh, lasers, other satellites? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, good morning, David. Thank you for the question. It's a very interesting question, David. You know, that's a world problem, a global problem. Some of these agencies like China, and not China, Japan, excuse me, They're actually looking, don't laugh, folks. They're looking, David, to build some type of wooden structured satellite, Mm. which eventually would decompose naturally in space as they enter the atmosphere so space junk doesn't come down. There are lots of proposals to have space tugs out there in which you could send a spacecraft up and literally tug something out. Another theory, well, it's another practical one, really, if they could just figure out how to make the cost of this something affordable is to get a large series of rockets in orbit that would gather these spacecraft, push them into a solar orbit, so they just simply burn up into the sun. I can guarantee you, Frank and David, the sun is not going to flinch one bit when, when it eats up those type of things, even if they're large. But I don't think, to going back to what David's asking, I don't think that's going to prevent us from getting off the planet. But just the other night, gentlemen, we were out at the lake. We do these programs at a place called Canyon Lake and a cruise, a little you know, 100-person boat for dinner. And up in the sky, for the first time I've seen it, maybe David or maybe some of the other listeners have, Frank, we were watching a Skylink train of SpaceX satellites going across the sky. It was like this beautiful space dance of about 40 satellites. We just looked up, and there's this long line like pearls on a string. But if those things continue, and what Jeff Bezos is looking to do to put up a lot of stuff, well, space will be crowded, but I don't think it will prevent us from getting up on Yeah, great question, David. And I, I wanted to ask you about that wooden satellite because I think that's pretty mm-hmm. interesting, and maybe we'll chat more about that. Um, well, a lot of folks eager, eager to talk with Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. If you're interested in any of the material that we're talking about, you really need to check out the Dr. Sky Experience. It's a terrific podcast. You could search it in any podcast app. And uh, you can also go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and just search uh, Dr. Sky. It comes right up. We will continue our cosmic conversation straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
my guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Singing Lucky Star, uh, joined this hour by a man that knows a thing or two about the stars, as uh, we have some cosmic conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment at 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Steve, uh, I, you know me, I'm very interested in the possibility of uh, extraterrestrial life, the possibility yes. of extraterrestrial existence somewhere out there. I'm always on the lookout for any messages from intelligent life forms on planets other than this one. I understand that NASA received a laser message from 10 million miles in space. Who sent it? Was it aliens? Well, no, and this is interesting. This is something you and I know for a fact here, and everybody will hear this. A spacecraft that was launched just recently called Psyche, which is obviously a spacecraft that's headed out to this most amazing asteroid. This obviously, when it moves on to this asteroid itself, it's like the core of an old planet, let's say. And it's a metallic core. And what they're doing on this is they're trying to test some kind of communication system that hopefully the Artemis program will actually start using. The old way of using radio signals and transmitting them, let's look at it this way. If we look at the Voyager spacecrafts, particularly Voyager 1, it takes us nearly 24 hours to send the signal all the way out there into the deep, dark recesses of the solar system. Now, laser technology... It's probably not going to get the signal there faster because these signals radio and, you know, and, and these lasers travel pretty much in the same concept, you know, sphere of speed. But what you could do is you could actually compartmentalize and pack more information, you know, more bandwidth, let's say, into this laser. So when it did, the spacecraft itself sent back information from a spacecraft 10 million miles away from the Earth, not alien, and it's testing out a new a new you know, concept of communications that I think will be very useful. It's very Star Trek-like in its own way, but it's in its early inception. So we have a lot more perfection to do with this, but hopefully this will be able to transmit signals when astronauts go to the moon so that maybe you can bounce signals around the moon, even if you're on the far side of the moon, correctly stated, as opposed to the dark side, and open up a whole new way of communicating with more confidence, more bandwidth, 
Real exciting stuff, don't you think? I do indeed. I do indeed. 800-848-9222. Paulie's in Westwood. Hello, Paulie. Hey, Frank. How are you? I got a question for Dr. Sky. I'm sure he knows it. But how much is a moon rock worth? Uh, Good question. Well, Paulie, I don't know the exact number, but I can tell you this much. There were a group of uh, grad students that were working around the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I see the story. I see the story. I missed you to the museum. <laughs> That's, That's amazing. amazing. They stole these rocks. The FBI got on top of them. And boy, there I, I think some of these people are serving sentences. But the answer is, I don't really know the exact dollar amount that a moon rock is worth. You can buy if you go to like these gem and mineral you know, events. We have a big one every year here in Tucson. It's like a world-renowned one where meteors and people buy rocks, you can find some alleged moon rocks, meaning objects that were blown off the surface of the moon, we think called tektites. You know, you could buy those for probably, you know, small dollar amounts. But I'm not really sure how much a, you know, they're so precious that I believe President Nixon gave to certain countries small pieces of these lunar, you know, lunar samples. Interesting enough, but hopefully one day, Paulie, we can get to the point where we're traveling to the moon and we can, of course, uh, have these artifacts in our own home at, well, competitive prices in the retail market. Wouldn't mm. that be exciting? That would be indeed. Uh, Steve, before the hour gets away from yeah. us, give us, some, uh, mm-hmm. give us some previews of what we might be able to see in the night sky, the live sky update. If people have a pair of binoculars, maybe even sure. just the naked eye, what can they look forward to seeing? Be happy to. Well, if people are looking right now, wherever they're listening live, you'll see the vestiges of that beautiful full moon, which just happened a day or so ago, the full beaver moon. Interestingly enough, the moon about 239,000 miles away from your eye, not exceptionally close, not exceptionally far, kind of an average distance, if you want to call it that. But here's something really interesting. Jupiter, as we talked about at the top of the program with the great red spot, if you just simply look into the east right at sunset, And now, let's just say in the New York metro area, and of course, listening areas where the show is heard across the nation, you find yourself even in the New York area. Sunset now will occur during the morning of the 29th, or sunrise, I should say, 6.58 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. The sun sets at 4.29 in the afternoon. It's like, you know, obviously not even the 5 o'clock hour. So if you just look in the east, high in the sky, that big ball of bright whiteness is Jupiter. It's about 380 million miles away from your eye. But things get more interesting, Frank. There's a small comet in the sky. Now, this goes to the people who have binoculars and maybe telescopes. It's called Comet 12P, Pons Brooks, two people that discovered this comet. Why am I mentioning it? There's a bright star in the northwest sky at night. You can't miss it, called Vega. Even city dwellers can see it. But between now and about the 5th of December, the little comet will pass exceptionally close to the star. So with the moon fading out of the way by then, let's say by December 5th, if you're lucky enough to have a dark sky, a telescope more than likely, a binocular might see it, you're seeing an object that's a Halley-like comet, meaning it orbits the sun once around every 70-plus years like Halley's. But the real showstopper, Frank, as we conclude that part of live sky, is if you look in the east, right around 10 p.m., the winter constellation of Orion is easy to see, the three belt stars. To the left armpit, the great star Betelgeuse, literally the name of a supergiant star that one day, you never know, may be the next supernova star. You'll see it as it's orangey red in the sky. 
Then, toward around 10.30, 11, southeast, the brightest star in the heavens, other than the sun, is Sirius. 8.6 light years away, that star, Frank, has so much to do with the story of the building of pyramids, the, uh, you know, the fertility sure. cycle of the Nile, fascinating stuff. 800-848-9222. Alex is in California. Hi, Alex. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I wanted to ask a kind of esoteric question. Uh, there was a there was an uh, organization called the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, I think something along those lines. And in 2004, they awarded a uh, an award to a paper based on Burkhard Heim theory for warp drive. And I was wondering whether, Dr. Sky, uh, have you heard of uh, Burkhard Heim? I'll spell his name for you. It's B-U-R-K-H-A-R-D and then H-E-I-M. And he had a theory that a strong magnetic field could warp space, and therefore enable a, a spacecraft to uh, travel at faster than the speed of light. And uh, yes. so basically that's the question. No, Alex, it's great. No, I don't know that individual. I'm always honest with the audience here and everybody like yourself. But here's the interesting part of this. Anything to do with warp drive, or stuff of like Star Trek, obviously, and beyond, it's so interesting. We, we have issues that we have to deal with here when we're talking about things that go faster than the speed of light. And this has a subject to do with how can we, as scientists, let's say, in the world, physicists, scientists, be able to evolve the theory of relativity and combine that with quantum physics to something that we're calling the theory of everything. And it's becoming very difficult to do this. But there's the strangest of conundrums, and I think we've mentioned this, uh, Frank, and maybe Alex, of course, is first time calling. Appreciate it. He may not have heard this. In quantum physics, there's a concept right now that actually has some level of you know, reliability. I can't say it's 100% guaranteed, but the math seems to work. And what is it? Is if you, let's say, had a light switch on one side of the galaxy, or Milky Way, let's say, 150,000 light years, you would expect that light to travel and take 150,000 years of light travel, right? Well, in something in quantum physics says, no, that's not necessarily true. And Alex, this is interesting. It has to do even with beyond warp speed. That instantaneously, we would get that signal to transfer itself across that distance, 150,000 light years, instantaneously. And it's known in the micro, you know, this quantum physics world as quantum entanglement. And Frank, we don't give homework on the show, but maybe people should look into that and really see because it's it's one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard about. And wouldn't that be amazing? Dimensional, almost like a dimensional transportation uh, concept. Alex, it's great stuff that you're asking about, and the, the beat goes on to learn every day the true answers to how this universe really works. Speaking of every day, not a day goes by where Elon Musk doesn't make some news. Maybe it's related to Tesla. Maybe it's related to uh, Twitter, now called X. Maybe it's related to his visit to Israel. Uh, He is also obviously very involved in SpaceX, and a lot of people were following the news of the Starship launch very closely. Doesn't Mm -hmm. look like it went too well. What was your review of the uh, last Starship launch? What happened? Well, I think they, you know, accomplished these goals. And many people, if they think, well, wait a minute, why waste all this money to get a rocket that second time around, you're going to hit the destruct button. And remember, the destruct button didn't work instantaneously last time. It had a lag time. So here's the plus out of this. As we look at what happened in the first launch, Frank, this is kind of a disaster. 
Their powerful Raptor rockets, the 33 motors, which engines, which didn't all fire in synchronization, some of them were actually, you know, dead on, on launch. They literally destroyed the entire launch pad. And the FAA and the EPA was all over SpaceX because large chunks of material were literally concrete blasted away, you know, thrown hundreds of yards away, maybe even more. They've now improved the launch pad and it succeeded. What did they do? They had this water ablation system, simple terms. It's a water system that floods, and this is not new. The Saturn V moon rocket had a similar kind of water system, which abated that blast. In other words, it just didn't cool it down. It sent, instead of, it, it, the water helped reduce the shock wave. That's also part of it. Now, here's the other part that they did that's really successful. And how can you say successful when you blow up your rocket? They used a concept called hot staging. So when you saw that rocket go up the, the second time, all the engines seem to work. The, the rocket now pivots where it's supposed to go up into orbit. Intentionally, it's supposed to go on an angle. What we did in the early days with Saturn V is we had to bleed out all the fuel on the Saturn stage, you know, the first stage of the Saturn V before we had separation, and then the second stage started to kick in. Simply, they did something called hot staging. Why is, what is this? They actually fire the motors on that second stage, which is that Starship rocket itself, you know, the one that'll go to Mars or the moon, before the first stage has expended, expended all of its fuel. Why do that? It's to give it some, say, extra 10% power to hopefully get payloads with great weight up into space. That worked. But no, the sad part to everybody watching is, how can that be successful if you blew it up again? They have a lot more things to do. But overall, Frank, in my rather long explanation of an interesting thing, there's a lot to talk about there. They consider it generally a step towards success, and they'll be issuing out a new Starship second stage rocket, mm. the entire system. They're going to do a second iteration of that. You've got to make a lot of you know, changes. And finally, remember, what happens to the first stage? It's supposed to go up. It's got to make a turn. This is like real science fiction stuff, right? And then that, that first stage has to then position itself, which it finds the launch pad. So that big monstrous first stage is going to come down just like they do with the Falcon 9 motors, you know, the stages. It's going to come down near the launch tower and the big arms that are on there, the Megazilla arms like a giant monster, will slowly grab that first stage as it comes right in between there and positions itself on the launch pad. That would be amazing. That's what's next, hopefully. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hi, Jay. Hey, thank you, Frank and Dr. Skye. We just witnessed a wonderful full moon. If we lived yes, on the moon, would we have a full Earth? Just the opposite. This is interesting. You bring up something excellent here, Jay. We told people, I haven't been there. I'd love to go. You would. I'm sure Frank would, and so would so many people. If you went to the surface of the moon, remember, a day on the lunar surface is 14 Earth days. So what you would see is the sun rising, of course, you would see the sun rising up into the sky. By noon, it would be seven days into the height of the sun, and then the sun would go down. What you would see is when we find ourselves on the surface of the moon, you're seeing the opposite phase of what the, what the moon is on the surface of the, of the earth. I mean, the surface of the moon, excuse me. So when the astronauts went there, they were seeing an almost full earth when they were still a crescent moon in the sky. So you would see this whole geometry just totally different. But again, if you're on the surface of the moon, a lunar day is 14 Earth days long. A lot of people don't know that. 
So you would see what? The size of that moon, I think we mentioned this before, Frank, uh, Edgar Mitchell, who we had the honor of knowing many years before he passed, he said he and Alan Shepard were on the surface of the moon. And Jay, they looked up and they said the size of the Earth is four times the size of the biggest full moon you're watching in any sky you've ever seen. Totally amazing. Wow. All right. We're going to continue with your questions in a moment. We are having cosmic conversations with Dr. Sky. If you want to participate, you can certainly give us a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. When we come back, we'll tell you about uh, a little bit of space history that might be worth revisiting. And we'll have a look at maybe the near future and maybe the distant future as well. This is the other side of midnight as we have cosmic conversations straight ahead. The other side of midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Blue Moon, you saw me standing alone without a dream. The great Frank Sinatra singing Blue Moon. Uh, We are having cosmic conversations with a gentleman who is very knowledgeable when it comes to the moon, blue and otherwise, including the beautiful full moon that we had uh, this week. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. The one and only Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, If you enjoy his commentary or his voice, then you absolutely must check out the Dr. Sky podcast. Just search Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app or just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, I imagine you got to look at that uh, full moon this week. Yes, absolutely beautiful. It's incredible. Looks better in a pair of binoculars, but let's not take away from the romantic side of it. I mean, we were out at the lake, as I said, on a dinner cruise that we do. Looking at that beautiful moon and the moonlight rippling on the lake is just something special. So as you're with the loved ones and family and children and everybody during the holidays, What could be more beautiful than looking up into the firmament? And particularly, Frank, as we move into December, we find out the last full moon of the entire year, obviously December, is called the cold night moon or the long night moon. Because it's interesting, because the summer, we see the sun take that long trek across our sky. Right around this time, as we approach the winter solstice, the moon takes the opposite side and goes through the long trek across the sky. So, We'll see that just after the Christmas holiday, uh, as toward the end of December. But isn't that spectacular? I mean, just look at it. And when you see it, 
just know that the right side of the moon would be New York City, let's say. And the other side is where I'm at right now in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm. So it's really not that far. 2,159 miles, making the moon a very important but beautiful object, but much smaller than most people uh, maybe give it credit. Phil is in Huntington. You've been patiently holding. Hi, Phil. Bill. Bill, excuse me. Hello, Bill. Yeah, okay. Good morning. Excuse, sorry. Okay, I found one of these e-books on Internet that debunks something on every page. And one of the things was it said that the the early landers on Mars, the Viking program, the mm-hmm. pictures data came back in grayscale. And at JPL or someplace, they tinted it red. And what it said is that nobody really knows what color the Martian landscape looks like, and they're never going to know unless somebody goes there in a spacesuit. Mm-hmm. Well, Bill, I can tell you this much. I have seen pictures of Viking, and I have seen pictures, not to dispute what you're saying, that show a colored surface also of the surface of Mars. From what we know from the, from the spacecraft that are there, and Perseverance in particular, and the other little rovers that have gone there. The surface of Mars would appear to have this obviously orangey-red surface. They say simply Mars is like a rust bucket. But the reality is the sky, if you were to be there on the surface, when you see the sun go down, is a bluish tint in the sky as opposed to seeing what we see uh, here and also sometimes red depending on what dust storms are there. But the Viking, it's a very interesting space probe, Did you know that they also thought at one time that they actually did detect life there, but there's Mm. this whole conspiracy thing about saying, well, maybe water was added or some microbiome, you know, micro, maybe some organic compounds were here from Earth and that we didn't have it in the clean room long enough. But the simple thing about Viking is we do know that the surface of Mars has a, a reddish color. We have actual colored images, even as far back as Viking. So uh, just wanted to put that out there for conversation. Speaking of historic space voyages, kind of as famous or as significant as Viking was Voyager. You had Voyager 1, Voyager 2, and there was an aspect of the Voyager missions that a lot of people may not be aware of, but I think certainly the old school radio fans in our audience will appreciate, and that's the Golden Records. Educate us about this one, Steve. What do we know about the Golden Records that were on Voyager 1 and 2? Well, Frank, I'll give you the short version now, but people can go to the Dr. Sky experience right there at WABCradio.com. And an interview that I conducted, it took me a long time to find this gentleman. He's co-author of a book with Carl Sagan and Edward Drake, Dr. Drake with the Drake Equation, called Murmurs of Earth, the Voyager Interstellar Record. So I found John. He's out in Hawaii, lucky and retired. What was he doing? He and Carl Sagan had a close relationship. And they were working on something, and they were sitting over a drink one day in New York City and actually talking about what can we put on this Voyager spacecraft, the two of them, that would be a telltale sign for any intelligent civilization that could decode it. And they said, let's do a giant record. And obviously, those that are interested, of course, in the old and now very popular LP records, they designed this record, which has not all, this is so bizarre. And John told me people can learn about it by going to the podcast. But the short version is, not only did they embed sounds of Earth, they had, this, they had to go to libraries. Imagine this, 
NASA gave them a short period of time, maybe a month or two, to come up with what they want to put on there. How do you find every recognizable, important sound on Earth? And they weren't even naive enough to put their own voices on there. Hmm. So they scoured up all the information. But, Frank, this is the most bizarre part. Embedded inside, for all the audiophiles out there that know you have a diamond stylus and a little record goes around and it picks up sound waves and amplifies them to your speakers. Not only is there sound in there, but back in the 70s, they developed a technology where you could actually play that record. Let's say aliens are doing it. Hopefully they have a good sound system. They would be able to pick up images of pictures through a technology that is so incredible. You'll have to hear the podcast. And they designed a cover for this. I'm so enamored by this because this book was hard enough to find called Murmurs of Earth. Isn't that an amazing story? And, and a long time ago, Frank, I had the privilege of actually going into Dr. Sagan's office at Cornell University. I was just this kid in college and, you know, a lady friend knew him. And I got to spend 10 or 15 minutes with the guy. And I was just this little groupie kid going, oh, Dr. Sagan, great. But little did I know, you know, how famous this man would be in science. And of course, uh, his very short time here on the earth, everybody misses him from what he was doing. But the golden record, if there's a civilization, as you talk about all the time on the other side of midnight, well, hopefully some civilization might pick this up and it's got some instructions. So I think that's a pretty cool memorial of uh, the 8 billion souls now that are on planet Earth. Uh, no doubt about that. I uh, concur on that front. By the way, a lot of people may remember on uh, about 40 years ago on ABC after the television movie, the most watched television movie of all time, mm -hmm. the day after, they had a panel on ABC that included Carl Sagan and other yes. folks, I think William F. Buckley Jr. and others. And uh, this month is the 40th anniversary of that uh, TV movie, The Day After. Oh, and yes. coming up next hour, I'm going to be joined by the man who directed that picture, Nicholas Meyer. So I'm looking forward to that conversation very much. So I uh, wanted to remind folks of that since you mentioned Carl Sagan. Abood, oh, yes. Abood is in New Jersey. Hello there, Abood. Hey, hello. I had a question about, um, I was wondering how orbit, how do you send something into orbit and how do you make this shape? Like, could you do like an oval shape orbit or no? Say that again. I, I didn't quite understand the question, sir. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Abu. Um, um, I was wondering, how do you send something into orbit around the planet, oh. let's say? Very interesting. Well, you first have to do this. You need a propulsion system, making it real simple. Many people not may understand this. You have to get a velocity of seven and a half miles per second for escape velocity here. But what you also need to do, that'll get you up into space. So if you and I are sitting, you know, Abood, Frank, and myself, we're sitting in like an Apollo capsule, the three of us, it's eight and a half minutes to go from ground to orbit. But what has to happen then is if we don't reach that critical, you know, speed, we have to get up to about 17,000 miles an hour, we're not going to be in orbit. But what happens to us is we stay in orbit unless we perfect that orbit Eventually, we're going to be gravitationally pulled back because the force of gravity is going to help us burn up. So what you need is a secondary series of motors to keep you up, keeping you in orbit, to stabilize that orbit. And then if you're doing like they did back with Apollo 8, as we celebrate that anniversary toward the 21st of December, they had to have rocket motors that would force the rocket in a big burn to get out of the gravity of the Earth. Not an easy task to do. So the simple thing is you need rocket propulsion that gets you up and speeds greater and faster than seven miles per second for escape velocity. 
to reach a speed of at least 17 plus thousand miles an hour to go into war. You know, we alluded to this earlier, the fact that uh, Japan and their space agency is partnering with NASA to develop Mm -hmm. a wooden satellite come sometime next year that would burn up rather than add Mm -hmm. to the debris problem. The, The interesting thing about this is I think when most of us think of satellites, we think of things that are very technical, that have all sorts of gadgets on it, that are designed to do something, whether it's monitor something or help power our GPS or our uh, satellite dishes mm-hmm. or our mobile phones. Uh, can you do that with a wooden satellite? What would be on this wooden satellite that would serve any sort of a purpose but not contribute to the space junk problem? Well, here it is. Here's a really big problem. And the people working with the Japan Space Agency and NASA, they're also looking at research that's coming from NOAA. And here's an interesting fact that apparently they found that 10% of atmospheric aerosols in the stratosphere, in other words, all this material that comes into the atmosphere, other than volcanoes, contain metallic particles from spacecraft, including satellites. So how they would do this is you'd have this object going into space, maybe not 100% made out of wood, but obviously less of the structural integrity of that particular spacecraft would be made of wood, and its purpose eventually would be kind of not reusable, it would be expendable and expendable in a way that would just what burn up and wood burning up in the upper atmosphere, according to many reliable scientists and those in the know, is less problematic than what I just mentioned of having 10 percent of these you know, metallic aerosols in the stratosphere. And as a previous caller talked about the, the issue of space junk, we really have to pay attention to this because there are websites. I don't have it right here in front of me, but people can look up what spacecraft are in orbit. And there's this one that you can open up and look at a three-dimensional thing, and it looks like the Earth has a giant ring, like Saturn, which is geosynchronous satellites. But if you look around the Earth, we're just so populated with so much of this material, we do have concerns. And radio astronomers, Frank, should be even more concerned because they're looking for certain frequencies to listen to the deep abyss of space and hopefully not have the microwave oven down the hall be the interference pattern or some satellite that's transmitting some, you know, in no disrespect to radio stations or television. It's just that the frequency bands are getting so tight. How do we control and build a way that spacecraft like radio telescopes can can pick up signals? The simple answer is do it on the, you know, far side of the moon. And that's also in the future plans way down the road. I'm going to try and squeeze in one last quick question. If we can make this a quick question, Joel in Florida. Hello. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. Just very quickly, if man is to travel uh, to the far distances of the universe and be able to do it in one's lifetime, would it be necessary for them to be placed into a form of cryonic suspension to do so? Yes, they would. And if you look at movies like 2001, A Space Odyssey, it's probably giving you the best replication back what Kubrick did, genius as he is, as he lives on in time and space. You would more likely have to do that. Other science fiction movies do talk about the necessity for doing cryogenic freezes so we could sustain life and beat our biological clock that would make our life short in space terms. Steve, as is often the case whenever we're together, the hour has just flown by, and I look forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. Absolutely. Good morning, and happy holidays. Uh, Happy holidays, indeed. I'm not going anywhere. We'll talk the day after in mere moments. Keep asking questions.